Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. It's something a bit different this week and I'm delighted to say that we've got a legend of the game in coaching stakes here. It's Rick Macy, who is a former coach too, and I won't list them all, Rick, because we don't have that kind of time. But Venus Williams, Serena Williams, Andy Roddick, Maria Sharapova, Jennifer Capriati, I could go on. Rick, thanks so much for joining me. No, I'm glad to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun. I hope so. Um... You're 68 years young, I think I'm right in saying, and you just said you just jumped off court. You're still working every day, I think. Um, what? When I'm your age, I, I fully intend to be either on the golf course or the sofa. What What keeps you going every day and still doing what you do? Nah, you know, I just, I love it. You know, I, I feel the exact same way as when I started at 22. I still have the passion. I love to help others. You know, I just love being on the tennis court. You know, it's 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 kind of been my life and it's like I still teach 50 hours a week, seven days a week, uh, run a business. You know, we have 50, 60, 70 tournaments at the facility. There's a lot that goes on. And uh, as long as you have the passion, you're, you're not really working. And that's the way I look at it. And, you know, I have a gift and a niche. And whether it's a five-year-old or someone on the pro tour or the number one player in the country, I teach anybody, anytime, anywhere. And I love it just as much now as I did back then. It's, uh, it's amazing to hear. I mean, do, do you think you're the kind of guy you'll be working till, you know, the day after you die or, or, or might you eventually retire? No, first off, no, I'm never going to retire. Um, you know, I want to keep doing this as long as I can. Um, I think when you unplug, you know, that's the beginning of the end. You know, there'll be a time when, you know, you maybe can't do it or you don't want to do it. But I don't think it will be. Uh, I don't feel that way, you know, and um I, I can't, don't even think of retiring. You know, I'm just getting started. There's a lot of projects. 
even more so since the movie. But more importantly, I just love being on a tennis court helping. And, you know, I don't I don't change strokes. I change people's lives. And it's it's more of a life coach than a, than a tennis coach. So to answer your question, I'm going to do this as long as I can. Uh, as long as I have the passion, I'm going to be on court number one at six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I, I guess working in a sport like tennis, which is always moving and always changing, it probably keeps you going as well because presumably you've had to evolve with with the sport. You couldn't stand still. Yeah, first off, great question. You know, 15 years ago, uh, my partner, Dr. Brian Gording, who has his PhD in biomechanics, we were on the cutting edge with stroke mechanics. And if you see a lot of the things I've done on YouTube, way ahead of the curve with the modern forehand, you know, and really change the way people teach the game, you know. So I've always been on the cutting edge. Uh, I told someone the other day, Roddick, who I had in the early 90s, he kind of was the first of the Mohicans. He kind of kept the racket on the hitting side, the pull and the flip. And I'm going, what is this little kid doing? <laughs> so sometimes the players can teach the coaches. So you always got to get better. As I tell everybody, if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. And I think if there's any coaches that are out there, you always want to get better. You're not trying. You can't read a book and do this stuff. There's an art to this besides the science. But yeah, no, the game's always evolving. And if you're not getting ahead, you're getting behind. And when someone comes in to see you and they've got something different like that, they're doing something differently, uh, like what's the balance between saying, well, no, this is how it should be done or saying, well, this is working for you. So let's stick with it and kind of mold a game that suits you and what you're doing. First off, great question. Uh, there's not a wrong way or a right way. There's a better way. Okay, well, it still could be my way, but there's going to be a better <laughs> way. You know, you got to take the temperature of the of the, the person. Like I just had a player uh, this past weekend from Notre Dame, change the forehand, change the backhand, I changed the serve, I changed the footwork. I mean, there was reconstructive surgery on steroids. I did, and this guy's 19 years old. You know what I mean? With younger kids, it's easier because they're like a piece of clay, and you can kind of mold the technical part because there's no bad habits, there's no bad muscle memory. I don't have to reprogram the reflexes. So it's different. And it depends on what they are looking for. You know, the technical part, as you know, it gets trickier as they get older. You know what I'm saying? Because they have that muscle memory. So it really depends on what they're looking for. But listen, I can help them so much even more mentally or strategically. I mean, those are the easier parts because everything in life is in the eye of the beholder. But the technical things, You'd be amazed how even though people are on the pro tour, it's just because they've done millions of something and they've kind of optimized that there still could be a better way. And so if they want to change, I'm all in and I can expedite that learning curve. Um, let me take you sort of further back, if I may. Uh, I heard the other day that you didn't pick up a tennis racket till you're 12 years old. That yeah. In the kind of modern world where kids are, you know, Andy Murray's kids are probably already hitting tennis balls at the age of whatever they are. Um, that seems like a very unusual step. How did that happen and, and what gripped you and, and how did tennis become your your passion? Yeah, when I was a little guy, you know, my parents played golf. We belonged to the country club in a uh, small town, Greenville, Ohio, about 30 miles southwest of Dayton, Ohio. I was a very good golfer, you know, and then my father passed away when I was 10 years old. Um, we lived a half mile from a park. Listen to this. It's a crazy story. And so I went down there picked up a racket, started hitting against the wall. 
I really liked it because it came back all the time and there was no <laughs> argument. I just fell in love with the game, hearing the ball hit the wall back and forth. Now, that was 12 years old. This was like the late 60s. And I just fell in love with the game. Expedite that thing by 18 years old, no lessons, self-taught. I was number one in the Ohio Valley, one of the better players in the state of Ohio. You know, played the satellites for a little bit. Very athletic. I'm in the Hall of Fame for basketball and tennis. So that's kind of how I got into it. And what's even crazier, I've never had a lesson in my life. And I teach <laughs> probably more lessons than anybody in the world. You know, so it's not where you start. It's where you finish. I fell in love with the game. But I always had a gift to analyze and figure it out on my own. And that's been a cornerstone of my teaching. You know, so I always have that in my back pocket. You know, but I understand kids and I understand parents, and there's an art to this whole thing. That's how it started. I knew I wasn't going to be good enough to be on the pro tour, even though I played some qualifying pro tournaments. 22, I got into teaching. And like I said, I love to analyze. I love to help others more than myself. I had a gift to communicate. And here we are all these years later. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. I wonder, is there a is there a first moment you remember when you, you kind of first realized that you had this knack for communicating with people or maybe a first player you, you, you did something with them and all oh, that worked? Yeah, you know, not really. I never look at myself that way. Even <laughs> when the movie, I know we're going farther down the road. I, I had to ask my daughters, am I really that hyped up all the time, all the time? <laughs> and they go, Dad, yes, you are, you know? So um, I don't ever look at it like that, you know? I just always trying to get better, and this has always been how I have been, you know, Midwest values brought up, you know, by my mom. And I think that's a, a big part. And your students can feel the genuineness and all these other attributes. That's how you really extract greatness. And that's been a big key Obviously, I've had some very talented young players. You can't mail it in. You know, I've had mm. you know, five players become number one. I kind of called they'd be one or win a Grand Slam. Like Sonia Kennan, scariest little creature I ever had at seven. I said she'd win a Grand Slam or Sharapova or Jennifer or VW or Serena. You know, so Roddick, I didn't because the men's game's a little more physical, even mm. though he was number one in the uh, country at 12. So I never really looked about I had a gift. I just knew that people like what they were getting and more people kept coming and they're still coming here in 2023. <laughs> you mentioned the movie a couple of times. We, we talked about it on the podcast when it came out, King Richard, um, which lots of people will have seen and Will Smith obviously won all those awards. Um, how disturbing was it to see the mirror held up to your face? And, and you, you mentioned having to ask your daughters if you're really like that. I wonder if you didn't enjoy it that much. <laughs> No, first off, it was actually spot on. You know, the first time I saw the viewing here in, in Boca, I didn't grasp the whole thing. My first concern was how they're going to tell the story and how the, the story was told. Uh, I was more than happy because it showed, number one, how much I cared. And number two, I took a huge risk, a huge gamble. It's one thing for me to say I believe in you. It's another thing to say, I believe in you, and you put up a lot of money, hundreds of thousands or millions. Listen, I could have been wrong. Hmm. I hurt. You know, what I saw, other people didn't see. And I went all in, okay, because I believed in these two little girls and what I saw. 
But Hal Bernthal uh, portrayed me. It showed how much I cared. Um, his mustache was a lot bushier. Mine was more like yours, a little piece of ass. <laughs> took me 25 years to grow. But no, uh, the movie was great because it showed those things. It didn't go from Compton to center court. Those four years with Rick Macy and me taking Venus to her debut, a lot happened there. Listen, when you have, when I'm there four, hours, four or five hours a day with these girls, hitting partners, ballet, boxing, taekwondo, filet mignon, you know, every day, you know, Richard became my best friend, you know, and B.W. and Serena were like my own daughters. I tell people all the time, they saw the movie, I should be in the Hall of Fame just putting up with that guy for four years, you know, <laughs> but no, he was my best friend. And it was all about girls. It wasn't about me or the father. And I, listen, I've been around Capriati, Pierce, Sharapova, Richard, I've had some interesting fathers, you know, and I'm kind of bulletproof with that. So to answer your question, I love the movie. It was spot on. It was almost exactly what happened. Walk, the talk, the nuances. Obviously, you mentioned Will. He was Richard. I'm just telling you, you have, I was there. I had a front row seat better than any critic other than maybe Orsine, his wife. It was crazy. It blew me away, the attention to detail. And not a lot of people would know that except uh, VW, Serena, mom, and myself, because we were there. So the attention to detail, people that did the movie, uh, it was a masterpiece. Hmm. Um, you mentioned you saw something in those two girls quite early on. Um, what was it? What did you see in them? What convinced you that they were going to be, you know, goats of the sport? Yeah, well, first off, you can imagine how much I was asked that question over hmm. the past or really 30 years, and I've never really done it since, took a chance like that. People wanted me to do things, but when Richard called me, listen, I never went out and saw a player. They either came to the academy or I saw him at a junior tournament. So I get this call from Richard Williams. I heard of Venus because there was an article in the New York Times about some kid that was undefeated in the 10 and under, whatever that means. You know, I've seen that movie plenty of times. Mm. And we talked. And he was the funniest guy ever. That's all I remember. And he said, Rick, if you come out here to Compton, I promise I won't let you get shot. Okay. It was a funny <laughs> guy. No, and it was May. It was May. And May is one of the slowest months of the year. And for whatever reason, how crazy is this? Whatever reason, I said, I'm going to go check this out. Jennifer was gone by then. She was already top 10 in the world at 14 years old. But I was very busy at the academy. So, I just decided I booked a flight, went to L.A., listen to this story. I got to tell it. So I, they come to the hotel room um, just like yesterday. And Ad sits down or scene sits down, Venus on one leg, Serena on the other, hugging, kissing, just like you saw in the movie. OK, Richard pulls out a piece of paper. thought I was in a deposition. This guy started grilling me because I think I respected it eventually. If he was going to let somebody in their circle, he wanted someone who's been there, done that, a role model and a father figure. So I wasn't like taken back, you know? So now he goes, we're going to pick you up tomorrow at seven o'clock in that bus that you saw in the movie. It was identical. <laughs> they picked me up. Listen to this. They picked me up at seven o'clock in the morning. He goes, we're going to East Compton Hills Country Club. So he picks me up. I get in the passenger side. I get harpooned in the buttock. There was a spring sticking up. I get harpooned <laughs> in the buttock. 
I look in the back. There's Serena and Venus back there like this. There's McDonald's wrappers, Burger King, old balls, dirty clothes, ball hoppers. I'm sitting there going, what in God's name am I doing in Compton, California? This was 1991. <laughs> now, remember, at that time, I was director of tennis at a five-star resort, Greenleaf Golf and Tennis Resort. So you talk about going to the other side of the track, to the other <laughs> side of the rainbow, I was way over. So now we start driving to East Compton Hills Country Club. We get 10 minutes into the ride, and I'm looking around, and I go, it's a strange place for a country club. Listen to this. We pull up to a park. There was guys passed. This was 730 on a Saturday. Guys passed out in the grass, people smoking, people drinking, guys shooting baskets. We get out of the van. They go, hey, Richard, hey, King Richard. They called this guy King Richard in 91, A-V-W, hey, Meek. Serena's middle name is Serena Jamika Williams. They go, hey, me. So we cross the basketball court. Listen to this. It parts like the Red Sea. They knew they were like celebrities because New York <laughs> Times was there like four months earlier. They knew these little African-American girls that played tennis. We go onto the court. I had a Wils box of Wilson balls shipped there. He goes, Rick, we don't use new balls. I want old balls. I want them digging them out. I went, okay, I got it. So now we go onto the court. You and I wouldn't have played on it. Pass <laughs> going up, holes in the net. There's a shopping cart around the net post, just like the one you saw in the movie, about seven chains wrapped around it. Richard, it took him 20 minutes to get the chains off. I'm sitting there going, this is crazy stuff. Remember, I'm at a five-star resort, Filet Mignon, and now I'm getting like double hamburger in Compton. So now we start doing drills. Now remember, I had... Jennifer Capriotti. She won the national 18s as a 12-year-old in 1998. Mm. That record still stands today. She's wow. the greatest junior player of all time. So my blueprint for greatness is like no other. Okay, low center of gravity, racket back in the parking lot, the ball was on her strings. Now I'm seeing these two little girls, arms going one way, legs going another, beads flying off their head. It was it was a train wreck. Okay, it was a train wreck. Okay, I saw Venus was very tall. She was like five nine. Serena was like a, a little girl still. And I'm sitting there going, what am I doing in Compton? Now listen to this. Then after an hour, because I thought maybe they were top hundred in the nation. I saw some athleticism and you know, I, I didn't I wasn't like, oh my God, like I have been with others. So now I said, let's play competitive points. It was me and Serena against Venus whole landscape changed. Now I'm answering your question finally. The whole landscape changed. I never saw two little girls try so hard to get to a ball. Now, there was a rage. There was a burning desire. There was a rage to get to the ball. Even if it was 20 feet out and they couldn't get it, they ran. And their nose was like that far off the ground trying so hard. And I'm sitting there going, this is crazy. I have a lot of kids that try hard. But this was different. Now I started thinking, where where could this go? And I write then and there, this is in the movie, I go, Richard, come here. Let me tell you something. Because it was more about Venus. She was taller and more mature. Serena was all over the map, okay? She loves it <laughs> when I say that. Um, <laughs> let me tell you something. You got the next female Michael Jordan on your hand. And he puts his arm around me. And he goes, no, brother, man. I got the next two. So listen to this. 
<laughs> then Venus, then Venus goes, Daddy, and I go to the bathroom, hugging, kissing, just like you saw in the movie. Venus goes out the gate, walks on her hand for five feet, does backward cartwheels for five feet. Now remember, this was 1991. If you were big and strong, you weren't nimble. So not only did I think both these two little girls be number one in the world, I thought they could transcend the sport because mm-hmm. it's not what I saw on the outside. It's what I saw on the inside. Because I was projecting 5'10", 145, 6 foot 1, 160. I was, you know, that was a coach. I was projecting. A lot of work had to be done. I had to put Humpty Dumpty together. This was a major project. But I just saw something that I never saw in my life. To this day, I haven't seen it again 30 years later. Hmm. What's your relationship with Serena and Venus like these days? Are you still in touch? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, uh, we're like family. We all met up at the after party at the red carpet, laughing, telling stories. Now, remember, from age 10 to 15, we're looking at the world through teenage little kid eyes. You know, now Serena's a mother. Uh, she's going to have another kid. That was just announced today. Um, mm. So I started going back down memory lane. Start, we start talking the stories. Venus and Serena were literally crying on the floor, laughing. Remember, <laughs> this has been a while. All the stories, because you forget. They'd have mm. consulted me with the movie about, I would have made it even better with these stories, because you can't make this stuff up. So great relationship with both girls. Uh, like I said, we we're all family. I go up and visit Richard in West Palm. You know, he's like 30 miles away. He's doing great. He's hanging in there. Um, listen, we changed history. And uh, I really love the movie because they told it exactly really what happened. Hmm. Uh, are you surprised that Venus is still going? I mean, I can't believe she's still out there heading balls. Every time I think she's done, she comes back. Not, not really. You know, listen, it's hard when you're that competitive to say goodbye. Hmm. It's hard. You know, yeah. and I think in doubles and in mixed doubles, her and Serena still could win, okay? Mm-hmm. And I really think they could be competitive. I think in singles, that's that's rough sledding. Because you got to play the next day. Your body's going to feel different. People aren't afraid of them. Um, so that could be difficult. But I don't have any insight. But if they did play doubles, it'd be must-see TV. Maybe they'll play at the U.S. Open. Maybe Venus will retire then. Who knows? But it's must-see TV. Let's face it. If they play doubles, ratings are bigger. More people are going to watch, because especially if they know it's coming to an end. But what's crazy is they're still good enough to win doubles tournaments on the WTA Tour and to win mixed doubles at Grand Slam. So I don't think the doors closed. I think it's still a little open, and it'll be fun to see if they do play. I, I, I was in New York for Serena's you know, US Open last year, and the, the show, like the, the kind of pageantry, which I... One of my colleagues always says that the Brits do pageantry better than anyone else. I, I think that night was pretty close. Those three nights of Serena's retirement. It's a special party. She gets people going. Um, I have to ask you, especially given your background working with, you know, as you've mentioned a couple of times, some of the best young players in the world. We have a great young player in Britain at the moment who's going through a tough time in Emma Raducanu. And we obviously talk a lot about her on the podcast. Um, from From the outside looking in, what are the big challenges that she's facing? Because it was kind of obvious at the beginning, you know, she was young, she had a great run and, and pressure and all of these things. But now it feels a bit different. She's been around a while. Is it just that she hasn't developed and, and got lucky for three weeks in New York? 
Um, first off, I'm glad you asked me this question. I actually just did something a week ago on YouTube about her where I still believe. And the reason why I believe that she can come back and be one of the best players in the world and win Grand Slams. I mean, this is what I see. You remember, Cass Capriotti disappeared off the face of the earth, okay? Disappeared. She not only came back, she came all the way back, Jennifer, and won three Grand Slams and an Olympic gold and got the big contract from Fila. Now, it's not where you start, it's where you finish. Now, obviously what happened in New York, that wasn't a fluke, okay? You have to have the game. You have to have a lot of other attributes to do something like that. And her mental strength could be her best asset, even though now it's probably kind of lopsided. I'll get to that in a minute. But I, I love the technical part of her game. There's nothing like a hole there, say, like in Coco's forehand. So the technical part is good. Uh, she's authoritative. She can play through you. She has the game. You don't lose the talent. You don't lose the game. You lose the confidence. I would love, I've never met her. I mean, I would love to work with this young lady. I could help her mentally. I know I could get this girl back on track. Okay. That's a whole nother discussion. But what's her life has changed, but that doesn't mean she has to change. Everything has changed around her. Okay. But it's still her playing tennis. But I don't know her. She's, still that hungry, still that competitive. These are the questions that are going to be asked a lot because people are always going to assume that's why she's not doing as well, okay? Because um, she has other interests, blah, 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 blah. I don't know, so I can't answer that question because it has to be about one thing. Anybody, anytime, anywhere, I love to compete, okay? And by the way, if I compete well, there's candy at the end of that. You know, it can't be the other way around. You know, if it is, you're not going to be as hungry. So I still believe in her. She's very young. She has the game. She has the talent. In my opinion, this thing can flip around. Uh, I don't know who's involved with her. I know they've shuffled the deck. You know, how much of it's her, the people around her. But I love that opportunity. But don't count her out. It's not where you start. It's where you finish. It's interesting you say she's got the game. So if, and we're in the realms of the hypothetical now, day one tomorrow, Rick Macy gets the job. Would most of your work be kind of thinking about the game and talking about the game? You think her technicals are pretty much there already? Yeah, I think that she's been taught very well. She understands mm -hmm. the geometry of the court. Um, so those things are there. But listen, I'd have to sit down with her or any pro player that was struggling. I got to know what's in their head. I got to know mm. what's going on, you know, before I get into it. Because, listen, confidence can't buy over the Internet. You know, you can't buy it at the grocery store. It can come and go in the blink of an eye. And there's a fine line. When you're confident, take it a little early, cut the court, more adventurous, get up to the ball earlier, volley more, serve good. That's, that's what people don't understand in sports. Confidence, it breeds confidence. Unfortunately, it can go the other way. So it happens a little bit more on the female side. You know, maybe they don't take the punch as much. That's what I saw about Venus and Serena. They were bulletproof. Nothing phased them. I could see that. Okay. So, listen, I'd, I'd love that opportunity if it ever came. But I just have to get to know her and what's in her head. Uh, because the game is there. 
but it's a game of inches. But I think in the blink of an eye, this can turn around. Hmm. Um, it's not as mentioned... bad. It's not as bad as everybody thinks. Okay, it's yeah. not as bad as everybody thinks. Okay, and that's the problem. If she's listening to everybody else, not all about the competition, then that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the name earlier who has kind of had a similar career path in, in Sophia Kenin. I don't know how much you worked with her. What what years did you kind of end up on court with her? Yeah, interesting. Uh, from age 5, 12, and at 7 years old, there's a lot of videos I did with USPTA. Me and, I called her Sonic Boom, the way she took that ball right off the rise. Give you a surprise, tore out your eyes. Okay, she had the best timing of ever. She was the scariest little creature I ever taught. So I usually don't teach people that young. I do now, but at age five to 12, I had her. She was one in the nation. I said she'd win a Grand Slam before 20. I was almost right. She was 21. <laughs> um, she understood the geometry of the court. She cut the court. She wasn't going to play like Venus or Serena, but she knew what was going on. She had one of the best drop shots ever, and we practiced that 24-7. So, um, yeah, the same things kind of happened to her, okay, but I think she'll get back on track. You don't lose the talent. You don't lose the ability. You lose the confidence. Maybe you lose the fitness. There's an injury along the way, so it can be a little tricky. Both her, okay, and Emma can go back into the top five. Listen, this thing is so much more wide open. Serena's out the door already retired, you know what I mean? Osaka's gone, but she could come back to number one. So there's an opening when you don't have multiple Grand Slam winners in the 16. Now, mm. uh, Iga is, in my opinion, leader in the clubhouse, much better than everybody. She's proved herself. She's the mentally strongest. Uh, but this thing's so wide open, most of the players should think, why not me? Yeah. Um, I've got a couple of questions from our listeners, if, you, if you'll indulge yeah. me. Um, <laughs> quite a lot about U.S. tennis, for obvious reasons. Uh, this is from uh, Ayush Bengani, who says, uh, they often say that the clay court is the best coach. So why is there so little practice or tournament to play even on clay courts in the U.S.? They say, when they say it's best to practice on clay courts? Uh, it's sometimes said, I think, and I've heard Calvin say it on our podcast, that clay court is the best teacher you can have because you have to work out the game so much more. I don't know whether you, maybe you wouldn't agree with that. Um, I think it cuts both ways. Okay, here's why. Number one, the points will be longer. Yeah. Just because the surface is slower. Ball will bounce higher. You won't get as much value when you hit it hard. So just that alone, you got to work the point a little longer. So you might naturally develop a little more patience. That's, that's number one. Number two, on the flip side of that, you might have a tendency to go back more. You might hit off your back foot more. Balls are going to get up higher. Your grip should, could slide under more to more of a Western. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I think that could be a little bit, uh, it cuts both ways with the clay court. When people say learn how to slide, listen, I've had people win the French Open and they never slid. Aphrodite, <laughs> Mesquina, you know, Davenport won it. I mean, sliding's overrated, not for the guys. It's a different sport kind of on clay with the guys because you're playing with more spin and outside the alleys. I think for you to play on both surfaces is advantageous. Now, with Venus, we train two hours a day on a grass court. How crazy is that? I wanted to shorten up her backswing. See, I was using the court as a teaching tool. I made her shorten her backswing, take the ball early, 
good volley would be great. Bad volley would be good. You know, so I, I, I kind of was using that as a teaching tool to make her go forward. And it's interesting, right here in my office, I told uh, Angela Buxton from England, a writer, I said, someday this little girl, this was in 1992, is going to win five Wimbledons. How crazy is that? BW won <laughs> five Wimbledons. And I said that when she's 12. So what I'm trying to say is you got to play on all surfaces. For someone to say just clay, I can push back the other way because you got to you got to be careful with that. Okay, I do think it will help maybe the running and the patience and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you got to be able to play on all surfaces or it becomes mental. Mm -hmm. The best players are the most complete players, and there's no, not a better role model right now than Alcaraz. He's changing how you play the game. He's even changing how you teach the game, which I said three years ago he was going to do. Now it's okay mm. to drop shot. Before, if you missed a drop shot, it's like, what are you doing that for, you knucklehead? Now it's like, that's okay. You know, that didn't start yesterday. That started when he was six years old. He'll do it on break point. He'll do it on break point. You know what I mean? So um, tennis is evolving. I think the chip's going to be used more, the slice, changing the pace. But listen, power's here to stay. Taking the ball early is here to stay. Movement's a premium. Okay. The, the game is very, very, very different. Uh, even then, six years ago, you know, athleticism premium, stroke mechanics, in my opinion, at an all-time high. Okay, mm -hmm. and you can kind of see that with Coco Goff on the forehand where there's a little hole that bubbles up under pressure. Uh, I was going to ask you about that, actually, the, the Coco Goff forehand. We often have listeners come and say, well, well, they say it two ways. One, why are you so convinced she's going to win so many Grand Slams? And B, what what's the problem with her forehand? What do you see as the the problem with her forehand? Well, first off, I'm good friends with her father. They they live in Delray. Who knows? At the end of the year, if she wants to take time off, she can put this thing together. But you got to reprogram the reflexes. You got to change the muscle memory. I got to reverse engineer a lot. This is not just shorten your backswing or be aggressive. I mean, that's not going to work. There's 12 years uh, baked in extra crispy of a movement. Um, so, and everybody's tried, but it's kind of been a band-aid. You know, it hasn't worked. Now, why did I think she'll win Grand Slams? She's an Olympic sprinter with a racket in her hand. Her backhand is money in the bank. She's a great competitor. She has one of the better first serves on the tour. There's still a little bump in the second serve. Uh, she can volley if she has to. And those are enough, those are enough qualities, okay, to win a Grand Slam. What I'm saying is, if her forehand biomechanically is put together correctly, and she could do this change, which isn't a guarantee, I think she could dominate. That's how much potential this young lady has. But it's a, there's a hole there. It's good enough to get there, and it's still good enough to win some slams. But does that mean you optimize or you maximize your potential? See, I do this a lot with players. I'm thinking, what if this player would have had Federer's forehand? What if Roddick, you know, who obviously coach, would have had Djokovic's backhand? You know, mm -hmm. we, we always look at it. That's the way I look at this stuff. And a lot of this starts at a young age. Because at a young age, back to the clay court thing, forehand was probably great. A lot of racket speed. You know, the arm was moving fast. But her stroke is backwards. The arm leads the body, and the body should be pulling the arm. She's always done it backwards. She has a fast arm, so she camouflages it. Now under pressure, as you know, that's when things break down, whether it be somebody's second serve, 
where they have a little bump on a ground stroke. Not so much on the two-hander, because the kids get it for free as a youngster. Because the two hands keep you connected biomechanically, and you're more of a unit. One hand always becomes maybe weapon a little bit, but inconsistent. So mm. hopefully I answered the question of why I think she can win a Grand Slam, because she's so good in other areas. But unfortunately, you're going to hit more ground strokes than anything. Mm. Um, I have one more question, which comes from Calvin Betton, our resident coach, and it's a slightly cheeky one, which is why, why can't why can't Americans hit a backhand? And obviously with Coco, it's not true, but it feels like through the years, certainly in the men's game, they've all been forehand dominant players, or many of them have. Is, is why aren't you teaching these Americans how to hit backhands, Rick? Um, well, I, I I teach ATP backhand where you pull with the right, you push with the left, the racket flips down and back like Djokovic. Okay, and a lot of these guys. But I don't think you can throw a net out there about, you know, the, the backhand. Fritz's backhand, I think, is pretty good. I think Sebastian Corda, in my opinion, he's the leader in the clubhouse. He's the most talented American. He kind of hits the forehand like Federer, but his backhand is like Agassi. I mean, it's automatic. I think he can win multiple grand slams. So I got to push back a little bit about <laughs> the backhand, you know, uh, of why, I mean, if I taught them and they didn't have a good backhand, then I'd own that. But I think, <laughs> you know, I think they get away with a lot of others. But I, I, I don't think that you can look at it and just say, why can't they hit backhand? Because I can tell you a handful of guys that have amazing backhands, and I can start right off the top of my head with Corda and Fritz, who's kind of you know in the mix right now, especially when Corda gets healthy. Uh, remember, I said this. I think he's the best young American. And uh, he'll win multiple Grand Slams. Mm. He's an amazing athlete. I met him in uh, Belgium this year, last year, I should say. And he's a, a an amazing guy for his age. He's so relaxed and talks yeah, well, so well. What I like is the mental part. He's a cool, calm, collected player. Pedigree's unreal. Both his parents played on the tour. His backhand is rock solid. His forehand is a weapon because he hits a tight spin. So he can kind of hurt Alcarez. He can hurt Sinner. Rooney, he, he can hurt you. Everybody probably wants him more spin. I think that's more situational. Uh, plus, he can volley, and he's not afraid to come in, and he can hit it short on purpose. A lot of people hit short, but not on purpose, you know. So he, has, <laughs> he has a little bit more diverse versatility to his game. I think his serve could be a lot better. It's going to get better. Once he's injury-free, his mind gets stronger. Bastion Corda is going to be one to be reckoned with. Yeah, I hope so too. He's a he's a great guy. Rick, thank you so much for taking the time. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I could do it all day and uh, I'm sure we'll catch up again some other time. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of iNews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. That was Rick Macy, the legendary Hall of Fame coach and, as he says, Hall of Fame basketball, which was a new one on me as well. Quite the athlete and uh, an interesting guy, so I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview with Rick. I've swapped Rick out and I've brought in our own Hall of Fame coach, Calvin Beton, live from, uh, is it Sicily or Sardinia, Calvin? I get them confused all the time. Sardinia, Cagliari. Uh, and it's it's lovely this time of year, I hear. Uh, it's nice. Yeah. Well, today wasn't. Today it rained all day, pretty much. R- rained enough to, as as Peter K would say, that type of rain that gets you wet through. Um, ah, right. But um, but and, and in tennis terms, on te- clay court tennis terms, it rained all day, but we stopped for about twenty minutes in total. Um, okay. So the courts were very slow. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's it's a you know it's it's a nice place. I haven't had a chance to look around it too much yet, but. Hopefully, I will do. Um, and we just had some nice seafood for dinner, so lovely. Good. <clears throat> uh, and we've also got, of course, our resident tennis writer and sometime broadcaster, and appearing from a very dark room today, which is very odd. George Belshaw. He looks like he's. Uh, you look like you're auditioning for a play or something. Yeah, the uh, light has. It went earlier while I was working. Um, <laughs> ah, that's because, you know, it, it's it's one can't survive while the other is alive. It's the... Because Calvin's just got his light fixed at home. Yeah. He's died about five years. Yours is gone. Right. It, it's it's, kind it's of imp- good that we don't do video. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to bore you too much with my light bulb endeavours, but I genuinely bought about 20 filament light bulbs and they just seems to only last like two weeks so and it's a really fiddly bloody light to change and i now can't find the bulbs so i'll I'll try and sort it for next week but my motivation isn't quite there to go down the uh through the the light bulb looking glass once again if you like uh you'll notice that this podcast is coming to you 24 hours later than normal that's not because i fell asleep listening to george (laughs) talk about light bulbs but more because he had tickets for duran 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 uh, or is it just two Durands, George? I'm not familiar with their work. So good, they named them twice. Are, are you right. genuinely not familiar with their work? I mean, I'm I'm aware of Duran Duran as a band, but uh, I couldn't Birmingham's name, finest. I couldn't name a single song, which I I appreciate is embarrassing. I find that astonishing. Wow! Like, wow! Yeah, I I really just like <laughs> it's I I, th- I don't know why it's just a huge hole in my like sort of blind spot in my music knowledge i mean my my music knowledge isn't good but for some reason i mean i probably i would listen like you would tell me some of their songs be like oh yeah that's a banger and now i'm looking at them online girls on film is a great song yeah Um, it was it was banger after banger and the other mildly amusing thing about yesterday was the support act was the scissor sisters or more accurately half of the scissor sisters so it felt like one one scissor sister yeah so it's jake shears uh, so he was just belting out all the Scissor Sisters bangers. They've also got loads of great songs as well. So wonderful time. And I have to say their rendition of Ordinary World was haunting. Absolutely lovely. So <laughs> highly recommend you listen to that song if you don't know it, James. It will uh, rock your world. And if you Duran Duran know... are actually um, Duran Duran actually the archetypal 80s band in that they basically they released their first album in 1981 and their last relevant album in 1989. Right. Um, Ordinary World was 1993. Last relevant I mean, album last... in 1990 in 1989. <laughs> <laughs> Ordinary World is their best song, I think. Um, but I don't. I mean, I, I I don't like any of the songs. But I could name you more. Um, I could name you a lot of them. Like 
But yeah, yeah they were massive I in the eight. Absolutely massive. I, se- I sense they may not be your thing, yeah. uh, Calvin. Do you want do you want to know another interesting link, and then we can talk about tennis? So Duran Duran Duran's manager sold my parents their house. Oh. <laughs> That's not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, right. I like... One of our That's listeners, please comment. Who know your parents. Please comment. You found that interesting. If you're one of our listeners and also a Duran Duran fan, because I bet so at least what... one person would have found that interesting. So what we've had on this podcast so far is 40 minutes of like one of the <laughs> most famous coaches of the 20th and 21st century talking about his work with two of the greatest tennis players of all time, and George changing light bulbs and having houses bought from vaguely famous people. You tell me who you want to aspire to be more. I imagine it's not Rick Macy. <laughs> right. Well, um, as I say, I hope you all enjoyed uh, Rick's appearance. And he, he was very affable. And I hope we'll have him back on the podcast another time. Um, it, it was interesting. You guys have had the chance to listen to a good chunk of that interview. I mean, it it's always interesting to hear people's versions of events. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, Rick was there for so many big moments early on in in Venus's and Serena's career and it, it kind of made me think about King Richard again and maybe because we felt it was a bit one-sided at the time we didn't appreciate that actually Will Smith's performance was pretty like I mean Rick says it was it was like he was there like it was amazing in that sense but um, it made me kind of re revisit the film and think about it a bit more which I thought was quite fun but um, anyway we got we had some questions from you guys for Rick, and we've also got some questions from you guys for the panel. So that's what we're going to do for the second half of the podcast today. We're going to do Madrid when Madrid is over, because Madrid is currently ongoing. We might mention a couple of things at the end, but I'm going to talk about some questions. Uh, Laurie on email has a couple. We're going to start with his second one. Would Calvin be able to elaborate about the four stages of a shot, anticipation, perception, decision and action, how these differ from each other, and also specifically regarding the component, shaping, diversion, and automatic stages of developing these. Uh, Calvin, as you said, this this might interest a very small percentage of listeners, but um, if you can give us the kind of cliff notes version of, of those things, then maybe that'll uh, keep people interested. Okay, yeah, I'll try and do it um, in as short a form as possible, but also make it somewhat interesting for any people who aren't, like I am, a coaching nerd. Um, so uh, the, the first one, anticipation, perception, deception, um, decision and action, <laughs> deception. Wow. Uh, anticipation, perception, decision and action is, is, is like the circular sort of, um, pattern of the shot process in the anticipation, obviously is, is, is the player is they're looking at wh- what they think is going to happen. What, what can I expect to happen here? So before the opponent has hit the ball, that is what what can I what do I think is going to happen? The next stage is perception. So the opponents hit the ball, and it's what what is happening now. What what information am I taking within that from from what I can see is happening? Which goes into the next stage, which is uh, decision. So from the perception, what is happening? How what am I what decision am I going to take on what to do here with this shot? And then there's the actual action which is the, the actual hitting of the shot. And then from the minute you hit the shot, the whole process starts again. Because from the minute you've hit it, you'll then recover to where you need to recover based on anticipation. This is what's going to happen. So the whole thing starts again. Now, what I think what Laurie is probably asking the question for, so I referred to it last week or the week before, 
whereby we only tend a lot of coaching and only tends to work on the the actual action of hitting the shot and and you don't develop in 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 coaching theory um it's 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 called a coupling you don't develop a coupling a perception action coupling of you can't and, and the theory and research has shown that you can't separate the two things you have to combine all of those factors into actually training a shot so whenever you see anybody feeding a basket feeding a ball out of a basket or a ball machine is the classic example a ball machine you're is a waste of time in my view because you're not getting any anticipation you know exactly what's going to happen um already um and even if you don't even if you have the ball machine on random that is not going to train your anticipation because you're not get, getting any physical cues from what has happened also it doesn't depend on the shot that you've just hit if you hit a great shot sorry if you hit a great shot down the line you may recover to somewhere else knowing that your opponent is then going to defend with a slice you may come into the net ball machine doesn't take that into account it's just going to fire the same ball again you're not taking any um exception into account because you the ball will be exactly the same as what's happened all the other times same with a feed um you're not taking there's no decision to be made because it doesn't affect an opponent it doesn't affect what you're trying to do so you're only actually training the action of the shot um so that's 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 the first one in terms of the other one uh the other stage which which um laurie asked about is component shaping diversion and automatic they're just the sort of they're the um i guess they're the components of, of how you coach something into you have the component stage so say you're teaching i don't know say you're teaching a a forehand drive down the line first of all you'd start working on it in terms of just being able to 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 hit the shot the basic teaching of from scratch to teaching the shot so you know that that's the the, the very most basic of of that of teaching it then you go into the uh, the shaping of it, which would then be to to refining it beyond that basic stage of of getting it to somewhere like a very good shot. You're then going to go into diversion stage, which means you're going to bring in other things as well as it. So you're not just obviously if, when you're if you're going to hit a topspin forehand approach up the line, you're not just in tennis hitting just fifty of those in a row. It involves some other tennis shots being hit. So the diversion is where you're bringing other things into it as well, whether that be pressure, other shots, mixed in different types of forehand up the line maybe, and that kind of thing. And automatic is the stage where you can produce that shot in any circumstance, so basically in a match situation, um, in, a, in a points and competitive situation. So that that's basically what they are and then in each of those and, and you would do one of those stages for each of anticipation perception decision and action so you would do a a component shaping diversion automatic for anticipation you do one for uh, perception you do one for decision and then you do one for action however they often merge into one it's not like you're doing like 24 separate stages or i think i don't know what the maths is there um yeah, so that that's that. Probably rabbited on for a bit too much there. I, I found that really interesting, actually. So thanks to Laurie. I, I have a bit of a question about the kind of shaping and how you do that for different players. Like, how much do you go with what feels natural to the player versus kind of pushing back on like kind of natural tendencies to to fix the shot? What's kind of the best I, approach? I, I think it tends to be what type of coaching philosophy you have. I mean, I'm I'm pretty open. I like to coach in a 
broadly in a constraint-led type approach, which means you're trying to coach within the the, the within the constraints of the game of tennis. How does this skill fit into the game of tennis? The other side of that is what we call a modeling approach, where you're literally you're you're basing the shot on an aesthetic of what what you think the shot should look like. Whereas what I find the problem I have with modeling is it tends to you lose a lot of of dexterity and ability. You can't you can't reproduce the same shot all the time. If you see, and I, th I think like what you want is adaptability in tennis players. You want the ability to, you can't just go, you can say, right, we're going to do a, someone may come to me and, you know, someone may come to me and go, I want to work on my forehand. And I'm going to go, right, which forehand? They go, topspin forehand. Right, which topspin forehand? Cross court or line? Off a low bouncing ball or a high bouncing ball? Off a ball where you're six foot behind the baseline or off a finishing shot? Uh, finishing shot, right? What what situation have you got yourself into there? You're going to follow it with a volley and that kind of thing. So there's, there's, 800 different forehands so to go we're just going to work on forehands today you're not that's like a modeling thing you're just going through a shot i want it to look like this this is all uh bringing up quite a lot of trauma in my own game calvin because i i <laughs> i've got a very extreme one-handed backhand grip and it's a great shot when the ball is nice in a good position i can drive through it and catch it perfectly but it's not adaptable enough and that's been my biggest weakness you know i've got an okay slice backhand that kind of keeps me going yeah. at our kind of level but i know if i had the dedication and could be bothered i would have to completely change my whole backhand grip and train it for about three weeks and do it but it's just it feels unnatural to me even though i know it's kind of limitation so I imagine that many other people are in a kind of similar boat with that, where they've had something drilled into them very early. And yeah, I mean, basically, just... in, in terms of that terminology, basically, what most coaches do who don't who don't know how to properly coach, I don't mind saying it, is you're spending too much time in the shaping stage of uh, in in the in you're, you're spending too much time in the shaping stage of the action stage of it, and then that's all you're doing. You're doing the act. You're just doing the action, and we're just doing shaping. We're not, you know, you can hit the shots, so it's not component, but you're also not, you're not using any diversion because you're not mixing in other shots, different types of positioning. Now you could, you know, you could do like, a, basically, you know, we're going to do, if, you know, if, if you wanted to do it like that way, George, if I was going to shape it or with a, but I'd move it to diversion is I'm going to give you like, keep going to give you those topspin backhands, but one of them is going to be low, one of them is going to be high, one of, but, you know, what I will see is, and, you know, this is not at the beginning stage. I watched, um, I'm here in, Sardinia at the minute, I watched a top, I think his player has just dropped out with the top 100 um, player yesterday with his coach feeding him out of a, a wooden box of balls, hand feeding him forehands, and he was just twatting forehands. And I think he made about one out of 12. And then they <laughs> then the coach clapped and stopped the drill. And I thought, well, I, what was that for then? What we're working on there? <laughs> um, I don't mind saying it was Bashar's Philly. So he's probably, I don't know, might be missing him a purpose, to be honest. That, that is his game style, isn't it? Just whack <laughs> yeah. the ball and yeah. hope it occasionally goes in. So yeah. one in 12 is not bad for him. Yeah, yeah it might uh, be the aim. Need, needless to say, he lost today to Tanasi Kokonakis in straight sets. Yeah. Quite surprised to see uh, Tanasi Kokonakis playing. Um well, there's nothing to play, James, because if they're if they're out of Madrid, uh, of course, yeah. This, you know, this is the problem with it, as we spoke about last week. That if you go out of Madrid in the first couple of days, you you've got no tennis for ten days if you don't play yeah. one of the challenges. Yeah, and he he lost uh, to Munar in 
in Madrid, so yeah, that, that makes sense, I suppose. Right, um, well, thanks for that question, Laurie. We'll um, we'll come back to your other question uh, a little bit later on. Uh, I, I've got one that I can answer. Uh, Love Will Survive on Twitter says, Why didn't you lot record a pod from May 2019 to 2020? <laughs> very, very good question, Love Will Survive. Uh, and an appropriate name, because in that case, I sort of didn't. Um, people will remember that I spent nearly a year working for Love Sport Radio as a, a radio host, and that was kind of the inception of this podcast and um then i was rather abruptly made redundant by a company that went bust about eight months later for which i took no pleasure because a lot of people lost their jobs and it was a a good fun place to work but yes and that sort of um took the wind out of our podcasting sales a bit but then well the pandemic then sparked george and and calvin's arrival sparked us to return yeah i was gonna say i i remember calvin reaching out to me on twitter to say oh I can't remember if he was just asking, do, do you want to do a podcast or do you still do a podcast or something? And Calvin sort of encouraged me and James to find a solution because I think the other thing was we were able to use that radio studio for free. Yeah, so we had exactly. like all the equipment and stuff. So it was quite a convenient marriage mm. for us. Um, but now, you know, Calvin sparked us into life and we met at the NTC, had a bit of a chat. And then I thought, God, he's he's quite interesting and got some opinions. He he could could be could work quite well this Calvin guy. And, and here we are now, <laughs> two and a half years later. Yeah, and and we've just gone past two hundred podcasts as well, which is quite exiting. When did if we I'd start noticed... doing it? Was it was it in COVID that we started doing? Yeah, it? September twenty twenty. I, I had to go back. Was that late? Yeah, yeah. Strange, really, but yes. Well, love will survive. I'm glad you noticed, and maybe you're someone who was a listener way back when i'd be interested to know how many people can like listen from the beginning probably not very many because not very many people used to listen to that podcast but uh, there are lots more of you now so that's exciting uh, and you can ask questions anywhere you want uh sammy dowd on twitter asks was calvin encouraged at all with Domi? i assume it's been dominic teams uh performance against stefan sitspass or does he still think there is no way he will come back uh for people who missed dominic teams uh, foray in the Madrid Open, he thrashed Carl Edmund six four six one, and then went to a final set tiebreak against Stefanos Tsitsipas. Um, I mean, Calvin, two French Open finalists, albeit obviously team in the, the pre his injury, and take anything away from that. What what I think the issue is going to be is we're told that he had to change his forehand. Now, it's hard enough for anybody to come up with one truly world class forehand, which team did. It's basically impossible for anyone to come up with two. Um, and that's where I think the problem may lie, in that if he improves his forehand, say, 10% from what it is now, and everything else stays the same and he stays fit, I think you could probably be looking at a top, top 40 player. But I just find it difficult, unless he can at some stage go back to his old forehand, but we told he has to grip the racket different and everything. Unless he can do that, I find it difficult to get him back to the stage where he can be a, a Grand Slam champion and potential multiple Grand Slam champion, which I think is really sad because I'd love to have seen peak team go toe-to-toe with Alcaraz for a couple of years. Mm. Because that is the type of player that would cause Alcaraz problems, I think. It'd be a really good matchup as well. I mean, I yeah. loved watching team. Um You'll you'll probably find it quite amusing, James, that I uh, I did watch some of this match, um, and I started watching it because I saw the first set score, and I was like, "Oh, is Team back? Here we go!" 
And I proceeded, and I only watched the second set, and he was absolutely dreadful. He was so <laughs> bad. Couldn't it? The forehand was appalling. So I kind of gave up because I was only really watching from a kind of team fanboy perspective. Um, so I'm, I, yeah, I missed all the good bits basically and saw rubbish team <laughs> rather than a uh, good one. But the forehand was really, really poor in the bits I was watching, and I found it quite surprising he was then able to make it so competitive in the third set because it just watching the match he just wasn't hurting him at all like every shot was kind of it felt like he was rolling the forehand in it just felt like mm. a slow shot that was so easy for Sissipas to deal with and he'd ha- come into good positions balls that team would be putting away comfortably three years ago you know he had a really good forehand yeah and it was just like oh Sissipas is always going to get to that he can't hurt him and that is a big problem for your forehand particularly because that's the controlling shot of the game and if you can't put away simple shots against you know Sissipas okay he's not not terrible at retrieving things but you should be able to put enough pressure on his backhand with your forehand that you get easier balls and easy putaways and team just wasn't really doing that in the bits I watched so I may have missed the very bit best bits obviously clearly have looking at the set scores but yeah, there still is a fundamental problem, I think. I, I watched the, the Team Edmund match in the first round um, with interest because it's quite funny. Well, not funny. It's a bit tragic, really, for Team and Edmund to be unseeded and clashing in the first round of the Madrid Open when there was a, probably a point in each of their careers when we thought they would both be seeded and playing in the semi-finals and finals of these sorts of tournaments. Um, and it was basically a good match until 4-all and then... Edmund chucked in a couple of double faults and it, it all went a bit pear-shaped. But I, I thought team played quite well, but actually, to be honest, I thought Carl Edmund, for the most part, was just went away. The level went and it wasn't great. And I think he only hit about seven winners in the entire match and 24-odd unforced errors. So, um, yeah, I, I, my personal thought is that the level isn't far away from team, but the question is going to be, kind of as Calvin has illustrated, how much he can improve with the limitations that he now has. And, you know, we talk about it with Emma Raducanu. Wrists are a real tough thing. And who knows how you're going to deal with it, George? Yeah, I think the other kind of reflection I've had a little bit in this period, because we're sort of seeing something similar with Zverev in some ways. You know, I don't think there's such a fundamental problem with Zverev's tennis in terms of a technique thing, but just this long period where you've had a long absence and you're coming back and trying to find your form and your rhythm. And I was just reflecting that, Del Potro's return is like absolutely mental, isn't it? That he actually lost a shot completely and was still kind of able to kind of forge that top career. But had it been the other way around and it was the forehand he couldn't hit, I mean, Del Potro probably wouldn't be coming back as a top 100 player. So I think team, given his limitations, is still doing quite well considering, you know, to be top 100 in the world at anything is amazing. But to do, you know, <laughs> regardless. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of a weird but one because he. He's basically coming back as Richard Gasquet. Like, <laughs> like great backhand crap forum. Mm. Like, great one handed backhand crap forum. Or, um, no, yeah. as, um, or, um, what's his name? The other French guy, uh, Pair. Bon Pair, yeah. But he's two hander, of course. But yes. Yeah. Um, and probably has a slightly different attitude from, from Dominic yeah. Tim. I can't think of two more different approaches to the game, to life, than <laughs> yeah. Brad, than Dominic, I used to work for Gunther team, 
and uh, and Benoit Pair. But uh, I hope that answers your question, Sandy, and thanks very much for asking it. Um, Tim Mason on Twitter, Dr. Tim Mason, uh, protected rankings, how long do you get them for and who has ever really benefited Carl Edmund not having much fun at the moment? Um, well, I, I'm just going to rattle through the sort of practicalities here because I had a quick check of the ATP rules because I couldn't remember the exact numbers involved. Um, basically, your ranking for the first three months after you stop playing, i.e. after you get injured, gets averaged. So, essentially, as the points drop off, you get this kind of average ranking, which means that your protected ranking isn't, you know, exactly what you were ranked, but it's somewhere in that region. And then if you're out for between six and 12 months, you get nine protected entries. And if you're out for more than 12 months, you get 12 protected entries, um, which is where you get to enter a tournament as though you were ranked on that um, three-month average ranking. So it means that you can get into tournaments despite the fact that you haven't played for more than a year. Um, yes, obviously not working out brilliantly for Kyle, who's obviously been out for a long time. Um, George, I don't know if you're, you're maybe best placed. Do you think it's ever really helped anyone? Um, yeah, I do. I think it helped Del Potro and people like that. I, I do think it's like a good, broadly a good idea. Um, there are players it's not helped and then it's just felt like, ugh. I kind of feel like you should have to at least win like one match over like the six tournaments you play, or it should like get doubled or something. Because there are players who just keep turning up for like a two-year period, using it or however long the period is, and keep just saving it for the grand slams because they know they're going to get the money, but they aren't aren't coming close to kind of being at that level, and that feels a bit. I say, but then I guess I suppose they would argue that it's not their fault they got injured and they have a right to kind of earn earn that sort of money from the work they had put in so yeah but I, yeah i broadly support it i think it's a it's a good thing on the whole um i think it's not we shouldn't just look at it through the prism of the top you know former top 20 players or something like that because those guys are always going to get uh, wild cards anyway like murray will get wild cards as much as he wants del potro will team will it's it's all it's a great help for players who are outside of the top 100 that say you're you know say you've worked your you've really grafted to get yourself up to 300 in the world and then you have a serious injury and you're out for 12 months you'd have to start right back down at the beginning of a futures tournament with no points at that stage so that's what it's there for that if you work your way back up and get yourself fit and you know you can basically come back in at 300 mm. or 350 400 rather than having to go and start right at the beginning with no points because it would take you, you know, it would take you two years to get back up to that from, from nothing or, you know, even a little bit higher, say 200. That, that's a long time. And, and as well, it's, as, you know, for a lot of these guys as well, it's money. Hmm. Um, you know, like you can't, like even for the guys who are, say, ranked 70 or, so, or for someone like Kyle, you know, it's, it's his job, it's his career as well. And he's been injured. So I see a lot of people going, oh, why is he using his protected for the slams and the masters? Because it's, you know, people need money. And, yeah. you know, they're the ones that have the biggest, um, the biggest paychecks and they have the biggest points as well. So if you win, it's the quickest way to get your, your natural ranking back up. Yeah. I think also, I was just thinking there about, you know, those guys who've grafted their way up to 300. When you graft your way up to 300, you run at a loss. Like, you, you run yeah. at a massive loss. And you're doing that 
because you're speculating, well, I mean, for any number of reasons, but effectively it's a speculation that you will eventually make it into the profitable ranks of the rankings. And it therefore would seem unfair if you then had to go and spend all that money again, like grinding your way up from... Because as we've pointed out before, talking about, you know, guys, you coach Calvin, there are certain bits of the rankings where you plateau and you can win tournaments and it doesn't really fire you up the rankings very far. So... I think it. I'm struggling to think of specific people it helps, and the, I think there's probably an element of confirmation bias that you see someone on PR and they lose first round really badly, and it's like, well, you know, what was the point in that? Um, I think it it probably is the kind of thing as well. If you took it away, you get you would realise how important it was because you'd get some really horrible stories where someone gets a major injury, is out for two years, and then goes back. There's no point. I can't afford to try and spend a year fighting my way back up, so I'm just going to retire, which would be the worst thing, I think. Yeah, um, no, I'd, I'd agree, and I think it's you know what what does has it helped anybody? What what does what would help in qualifiers? Because for me, it would be that if you're around, say that you were one fifty when you got injured, and you were out for eighteen months, if you got back up to one fifty within the twelve within you wouldn't use it for 12 tournaments in a row there'd be other ones that you use without you play without using it if you're a roundabout back up there somewhere like 200 i would say it's worked because you wouldn't have got that high without the protected ranking yeah yeah i think so and and yes of course people think about it tactically and, and they're not you know don't hide that i remember talking to kyle in australia and he was saying well i'm gonna go and play a couple of like I think ITF events maybe in America to get some match time and then I'm going to go and use my protected ranking to play this or tournament and then I'll go and play a few quote-unquote natural ranking tournaments you know ones that he can get in on his natural ranking and then you know I, I just kind of pick and choose to help him work his way back and yeah I, do, I don't think I don't think that's hurting anyone I've never looked at a draw sheet and gone god there are nine protected rankings in this tournament, how incredibly unfair it, it doesn't happen. You know, we talk about getting in as doubles guys more, and that and the unfairness of that being able to use your singles ranking to get into a doubles tournament, that kind of thing. I think that's a great yeah. injustice. Um, right, one last question. It's from Laurie again. Uh, hopefully, a fun one. He says, "Was Brandon Murphy's behind-the-back passing shot in the UK Pro League the shot of the year so far? I can't quite tell from the footage." but he looks like he's fully de-weighted when he hits it. Um, if you look in the show notes, I will have posted a link to this shot. I mean, it is pretty incredible. He's running into the forehand corner uh, and effectively runs past the ball and then whacks it down the line. I mean, is is that the shot of the year, Calvin? It's pretty impressive. I mean, most some of our listeners will know that I used to coach Brandon for a couple of years. Um, and, you know, he's a phenomenally talented kid. And he's got those shots and more in the locker, but it's an exhibition shot. It's not shot of the year, no, because it's not a relevant shot. I don't want to sound like a misery guts here, but it's not a relevant <laughs> shot. Like, he did win. He did win the point. Yeah, how many games did he win after that? <laughs> I'm not sure. No, he won no games after that. Oh so no! So it's like it's it's like you know we talk about football. We talk about the greatest goals ever have to be in relevant big matches, big game-changing, 
type things. And I went pretty big on the podcast a couple of years ago when Dominic Team hit that backhand cross court and I said it was the shot of the year. I think it was something like seven all in the tie break and he hit a cross court backhand winner while his opponent was actually stood where the winner went straight past him. That's a shot of the year. Now, I think at the stage when Brandon hit it, it was like a set and a one break down and 15-30. And, you know, it was kind of a, yeah, it's an exhibition shot. He doesn't really have to hit it. He can just hit a forehand. Like, you, you know, you just slow down and hit a forehand there. But, yeah, it's great fun. But, you know, it's not shot of the year, no. I was just I actually preferred Ben Shelton's shot anyway, but he also went Shelton on to lose. Shot. Yeah. So uh, that doesn't uh, help get into Calvin's uh, <laughs> shot of the year debate either. But that that was an absolute cracker as well. So that was Yeah, two really you know awful, so. great you know, you we like to see them. You know, we, we like to see them um those type of shots. You know, it's it's nice, it brings something different to the game and it got a lot of exposure, you know, it's like a lot of but anybody who knows Brandon knows that he can you know, he's one of the few players who can play that type of shot. He's he's got a phenomenal talent for the game of tennis. Mm. Um, but the you know, I guess sort of the problem is he plays shots like that at one breakdown in a second set. <laughs> um, yeah, quite. Uh, I, right, say, I will say as well. I will say as well. There's nobody. I've never seen any. I don't think I've ever seen Brandon miss a through the leg shot. He's phenomenal at them, and he can hit lob winners <laughs> off it as well. Every time the ball goes over the net, he he he. he wins the point basically but again the decision to make them that's the issue right well let's um that's all that's all the questions we're going to do for today uh there's a couple i know i said we weren't going to do madrid open but there's a couple of things i just wanted to kind of flag bring up mention whatever um andy murray is playing tomorrow in ion provence in a challenger that he took a late wild card for um absolutely hysterical that he took a late wild card for Ion Provence to get some game time and then draws the other high profile late wild card <laughs> in terms of Gail Monfils, which I mean, it's funny, but I feel for the tournament organizer, like gets Gail Monfils and Andy Murray into his challenger during the Madrid Open and then pulls them out of the hat next to each other in the first <laughs> round. Um, so, uh, isn't Monfils got... basically retired though? Now? Well, I, I don't think he wants to, but uh, yeah, I mean, he's on the way out, but he he's desperately trying well, to hang on, I think. When did he last um, play a match? What a great question. I mean, he had that horrible run, didn't he, where he literally, like, yeah, he was yeah. in tears in press conferences because he, he just couldn't win a match. And he even started working with Gunther for a while, which is pretty punchy. Um, wow. He last played in Ostrava. He beat Evan Furness uh, by retirement, to be fair. And then lost to Damir Juma in Ostrava in April. Um, so he has played a bit, but he did. He has lost five tour-level matches in a row. He is now grinding challenges almost professionally, it would seem. Um, and could be like, this could be like one of those wrestling retirement matches, couldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the winner. Stops. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> could Murray, well be. Murray will be joining him in the challenges if he keeps playing like he did this week. <laughs> Yes, uh, and he was fairly open about the fact that he didn't didn't play well in Madrid. I mean, it, it was a kind of classic Murray where he played badly in Monte Carlo and said he might never, basically said he might not play on the clay full stop. And then he said, oh, I'm going to play Madrid. And then he went to Madrid and lost and said afterwards, oh, I, I might, I mean, I'm going to have to play the French Open because I might never get the chance to play it again. And, and you know, talking like he's about to retire on the spot. And then he goes and signs up for a challenger in the south of France. Um, he is still down to play Rome as well, um, as well as the French. 
I mean, yeah, Vavas- Vavasori was playing here today, and I watched maybe half an hour of his match, and he lost. And the number of different people who said a variation of the words, how on earth did Murray lose to this guy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, were, were in double figures at least. <laughs> he um, Murray Murray had a good uh, pop at one of our one of your current colleagues, James, didn't he? It was when it, it was Simon Briggs, wasn't it? He was asking him. It was uh, oh well, it was because Murray played forehand. Murray played the worst shot I've ever seen by almost any professional tennis player when he was on top of the net and had an entire court to aim at and net like somehow put it into the net. And I think he said to Briggsy, even you'd have made that. I mean, I don't know how good you are at tennis, but I think you'd have made that. <laughs> Would he have made it, George? I... You'd know him at tennis, Briggsy? He'd, he'd have got it in the court, whether he'd have finished or not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Briggsy's fine. He, he's a very dedicated late Yeah, I was going to say, tennis. he works very hard at it. Yeah. Uh, and makes he's improved sure he... loads. Yeah, we used to hit a fair bit when I was. He's, he's got a rubbish backhand as well, hasn't he, George? Like, do you two when you hit? Do you just go forehand to forehand? <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say my backhand's rubbish, Calvin. It's just, uh, <laughs> Take that limited. So right. <laughs> oh, okay. It's not quite. I'm told, I'm told it's not quite peak in... team against Wawrinka, is it not? <laughs> like when you two are hitting. I do rasp it a bit like Wawrinka occasionally. When I catch right. it, it does fly. Okay. I'm told the best player in the British press back is Eleanor Crooks, perhaps. Um, she's pretty handy, I think. Good player. The real, the real. Tamani's Tumani. not bad as well. Yeah, I heard good things. The real gun of the press box is a guy who works in Australia for the Guardian and a few other people. Is Courtney Walsh, uh, not the cricketer. He is uh, like a proper, proper tennis player. I'm told. Yeah. There's, so. there's two. Uh... There's two French or Swedish lads as well who are great, and they um, they hit at the ATP finals with um, Mahu and uh, what's his partner called? Herbert. Herbert. After and they, they were trading blows with those two pretty well. They're it was really... quite impressive. Yeah, good that happens. I, f- I find do you, do you guys find that happens a lot with the journalists? I find the Spanish and French. They tend to also be really good. Like, I played football with Julian Lorenz, and he's a phenomenal footballer. <laughs> They're well, definitely Julian better Rog- than we are. That's yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. Yeah, the the continentals. Madrid's one of the best um, tournaments to go to as a journalist from this perspective, though. That you they have a journalist tournament there on the actual clay courts out on like court fourteen in the oh, nice. second week. So I played there. I was a quarter finalist one year. Got lost to some Spaniard. Who was obviously very Some good? Spaniard. Home advantage. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you and Holger Rune both not enjoying home crowds. Well, clearly, well, the court suits me quite well because it's uh, quick clay and it bounces really high, which for me is quite useful because I am mm. quite tall. Um, yeah. So it, it was a good match. You know, he was the more natural clay court player, but my strengths worked quite well. Uh, as God, well. So we've had a lot of ten eight. I've had a lot of George being boring about his own life today. I apologise to listeners. <laughs> um, was there enough room behind the court for you to go very, very deep, George? Because if not, you've got something in common with Daniil Medvedev. <laughs> yeah, there was plenty of room for me, but I don't play quite as deep as he does. So I'm far uh, too so lazy to want to retrieve from the baseline like that old game. People, It was just something else I wanted to flag from Madrid. People will have seen today Daniil Medvedev getting a fight with Carlos Bernardes. And then the tournament supervisor, because he said, I'm the number two seed. Why have I got this disadvantage of being out on the second court? He was not on the main court in Madrid. And 
on match point he very nearly took out a line judge he was that deep she was like shrinking against the back wall um he was beaten by aslan karatsev in straight sets i watched quite a lot of this match and i don't want to say australia 2021 but that's what it reminded me of like karatsev doing that thing where he just gets ridiculously hot and starts whacking forehands yeah he was i saw there was a stat that that was like medvedev's first like non-top 100 defeats um, at Masters level or something like that, or first one for a long time anyway, and I was kind of thinking, yeah, but this bloke is a troll. We've been here before. Yeah. That's, you know, that's <laughs> such a meaningless statistic. Yeah, it's he's just like, he, he is a top 50 player, but underneath like 15 layers of a non-top 200 player, and <laughs> it just depends which one you happen to break through, through to that particular day. Um, as I say, we'll talk much more about Madrid, and we might even talk about um, Zizhe, Zhang Zhizhen, who is on a historic run. He's just beaten Taylor Fritz, having dumped out Cam Norrie as well. Both very close matches, it should be said, um, but I would like to just pay tribute to that. Um, I think they call him Jerry, uh, where he trains in Florida, uh, because pe- people... That's who, a different who work... guy. That's a different one. No, there's two Jerrys. There are two. Oh, there's a there? big oh. Jerry and a little Jerry. Um <laughs> But basically, there are three Chinese lads who all train together in Florida, and people will know that generally when people come from China to live in the West, they choose like a, a white name, for want of a better word. Um, I At school, I we had quite a lot of Chinese kids at school who had, similarly had all chosen names, but there were always just really sort of outdated ones. So yeah. I, I, I knew like a Dorian, a Jensen, a Jasper, like names admittedly people at my school also had silly names who were just english and absurd like peregrine but um that's another story <laughs> george you had something to say yeah I was gonna say, well one more one more boring story about my own life james if you'll if you'll if you'll humor me honestly uh, <laughs> years ago um when i was like 18 we went to the voluntary academy to I think I've said on the pod before uh, on the episode when he died that I had a lesson with Nick when I was there. But yeah, um, I was going to tell you what my nickname was from that whole thing, and I'll, I'll do an impression. They, they used to make us do running drills, and they'd go, "Go on, six nine, six nine, get going." <laughs> For the record, <laughs> yeah. you're not six nine. I'm not six nine. And when I'd hit like an ace, they go, "Oh, he's serving out of a tree, six nine, six nine, seven out of a tree." <laughs> right. Well. On, on that story. note, <laughs> that was the best of the boring stories, I think. Uh, okay, I don't Calvin think, enjoyed I, it. I think, <laughs> Low I bar. think if we have to choose between Rick Macy and George Belshaw, I think most people. Well, anyway, I won't. We won't put that to the listeners because George might get replaced. Uh, that's all we've got time for this week. As I say, uh, thank you very much to you, Calvin, to you, George, for joining me as always. Thank you to Rick Macy for his time. Uh, fascinating uh, to hear from him. Please do leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you share the podcast to people. Tell your friends about us. And most importantly, please do come back next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.